Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 163 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. My name is Tim Robertson. I'm the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start off by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help, help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the Alpo, membership begins at only $22 a year. For more information, visit us at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find the ALPO on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And yes, this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search, just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode. And now, episode 163 of the Observer's Notebook. And we're going to Hawaii. Aloha. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook podcast. And today we have a special guest from uh, from Hawaii, the Mauna Kea Observatory, Doug Simons, the uh, director. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Aloha, good to talk to you this morning here. Or should I say aloha? Either way, I've, I've been in Hawaii for about 35 years, so I, I generally bleed off of aloha. Okay, well, that, that works for me. I like aloha. <laughs> it's always good. Um, now, I've talked to uh, other directors of observatories, and some of them are more on the administrative side. You know, that's their background. They're not really mm -hmm. astronomers, but you are an astronomer. I am. Since, since a, um, a, a little kid, I go way, way back with astronomy. I got started with um, actually a toy telescope back when I was in seventh grade and um, got hooked at that time. And um, I've had a, a pretty wild ride. Uh, most of my career has been Hawaii astronomy. Got my degree at the University of Hawaii, my PhD, and my, my bachelor's in astronomy at Caltech. Okay. And I've kind of never left the field or the state of Hawaii, actually, after I got here. Now, going to Caltech, are you from California originally? or uh, Born in California. I'm the youngest of 10. Oh, my. We moved to Florida when I, I think I was in second grade. Um, so more or less grew up in, in South Florida. And then um, after graduating high school, moved west to Caltech and then just kept going west after there. <laughs> okay. Now, is there, was there an, an event that triggered an interest in astronomy? 
Uh, there sure was. Um, that uh, telescope that I got was on a 60 millimeter vector hmm. for, for as a Christmas present. Um, really got me hooked. Prior to that, I, uh, I've been collecting things. If you look in the video right now, you'll see some butterflies on the, the wall. I, right. I collected butterflies when I was about 6 to 12 years old. Oh, my. And, um, and my dad was an entomologist, and, and I was that when I was a little kid. Um, and for your listeners, there was an age before internet where you did, you did entertainment was <laughs> ride your bike and run around <laughs> with the butterfly net. Actually go outside. I remember those days. I, I miss those days. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, uh, I think my parents realized I was getting a little bored with that. They gave me a telescope and mm-hmm. got uh, hooked when I, I uh, on my own. Uh, found Saturn for the first time in the sky, and it was a, a positively transfixing and transformative mm-hmm. moment for me. Um, got a little frustrated after that because I also got a picture book um, with that telescope. And other than the moon and Jupiter and Saturn and Venus, um, nothing in the picture book looked like it did. To the <laughs> I eventually figured I, did, I needed a bigger telescope, um, built um, my own backyard observatory when I was 15. And, oh, wow. I uh, got hooked on um, uh, astrophotography uh, and that frozen. I've done some research. I slipped into the black hole of the administration um, when I started as the Gemini Observatory Director in 2006. I ran the instrument program for about five or six years prior to that. And then I had almost 10 years director at Canada France White Telescope. Uh, a couple of years ago, came full circle to my alma mater, where I got my degree, and now I'm the director of the UH Institute for Astronomy. Wow! So you actually gone to a lot larger telescopes from the six millimeter meter refactoring. Uh, yeah, yeah. Though I, I, you know, I was just that last weekend. I was up at uh, Holly Pahaku, the Midlow facility on Mount Kea, with ten uh, Native Hawaiian high school students. And I had still have that telescope I made in high school. Oh my goodness! A, uh, oh, it works like a champ. So it's a thrill to to be able to show um, the local kids for many for the very first time what you and I might take for granted, you mm-hmm. know, the planets and Andromeda, the things of that sort. Uh, so yeah, I, I deal in giant telescopes and all that that entails, but uh, my roots are in, in grinding and polishing small telescopes and pulling it out in the backyard and looking through an eyepiece. No, there you go. Not many of us left that still do that. Kind <laughs> of old fashioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you did. Okay, you just mentioned uh, taking the telescope out with some local kids and things like that. And you started a program mm-hmm. in Hawaii to uh, what translate and teach astronomical nomenclature to the natives. Oh, um, yeah. There are lots of programs we're involved with. Um, I was a, a member, sort of a founding member of, of a small, what we call a hui or a team here um, that created what's called a hua heanoa. That in Hawaii means calling forth a name. Uh, it's actually a wonderful guy called John DeFries who approached me about um, the idea of, of back then where he proposed to be uh, Hawaiian celestial nomenclature. And the idea was to um, um, assign um, Hawaiian names to major discoveries made from Hawaii based telescopes. And uh, I am uh, about 10 or so of us on a small committee uh, designed the program. And our first foray into that was Oumuamua, which was the first interstellar asteroid to, to pass through our solar mm. system. I think we're at the seven or eight names now of major discoveries. 
Um, there, are, there are several still in the works, but it's been a real thrill to um, uh, to work with that program. It's now housed at Emilo Astronomy Center, which is just down the street from us here. In, in and um, uh, to see the creativity and the protocol and the sophistication of naming in Hawaiian culture, mm-hmm. it's very from um, so-called Western culture, uh, and um, and particularly fun to see the, those names uh, come up in science conferences, publications, things of that sort, to, to remind everybody that we call Olela Hawaii, or the Hawaiian language. It's alive and well, and mm-hmm. um, incredibly sophisticated language that is adaptable to to um, by these these very thoughtful names to objects in the sky. That's that's great. Yeah, I, I, I've been in Hawaii a number of times. My son actually lived there for seven years. He taught elementary school, and the Hawaiian great. people really are proud of their culture and their language. And it's it's nice to see that in the family, yeah, involvement as well too. Living there, it was Absolutely. yeah. We we um, it's really um, students that we we use these days uh, with um, experts in in Alela Hawaii to guide the naming process, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry, Rant, Larry um, uh, Kimura uh, is sort of the, the heart and soul of the program. Larry uh, is a wonderful guy, um, widely regarded as one of the most important people in saving the Hawaiian language, which was near um, essentially in the 70s, which is sort of the start of the Hawaiian Renaissance. Uh, and he and uh, a handful of very bold and uh, visionary people within the Hawaiian community um, restarted the, the education uh, here on Hawaii Island of Leila Hawaii at the uh, even at the, the toddler level hmm. um, and I think it's something like 25,000 people now speak uh, Native Hawaiian um, there's the uh, Kahakaula which is the College of Native Hawaiian Language which is right down the street here from where I'm at I'm, um, physically I'm right now at the UH Hilo campus okay um, but Larry, uh, he's the heart and soul of Ahuheanoa, and um, if in doubt, we go to we go to Uncle Larry for, <laughs> for names. Uh, he he is the expert in the whole area. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I, I heard about this program, and it sounds really interesting. It really does. Now, going back to the observatory, the, can you give me like a brief history of Mauna Kea? Yeah, I can try. Okay, uh, it uh, was essentially uh, discovered as an astronomy site uh, in 1964, I think it was. Um, the, the origins are, are not what you would expect. Um, the origins are traceable back to, I think it's the largest earthquake in recorded history. Hmm. It was off the coast of Chile, uh, what, 1962? Uh, I think it was May of 62. And that uh, utterly devastated uh, Hilo Town for the, and just crippled the economy. Uh, on Hawaii Island. And it was the Chamber of Commerce that um, was trying to find ways in uh, what was a a very new state. Hawaii was only a few years old, in a sense, as a U.S. state, Mm -hmm. to um, diversify the economy and and, um, uh, bring forth new and innovative ways that Hawaii could potentially have sort of a leadership role um, in the world. And um, that the Chamber of Commerce sent out five letters, I think, uh, to various scientists. Uh, one of them wrote back it was Gerard Kuiper, who was a very mm. famous astronomer at the time. 
And um, he happened to be over on Maui doing site testing on Haleakala uh, for um, uh, observatory interest there and uh, looked across and saw Mount Akeo uh, was still clear when, when Haleakala was under clouds. Of course, mm. Mount Akeo is quite a bit higher. Right. Um, and he um, uh, brought over Alika Herring, uh, who is his protege and, and actually the lead in the early days of site testing. Um, Alika's, that, that's an amazing story under itself. Alika's native Hawaiian who um, hand ground uh, his own telescope primary mirrors. He worked for an outfit called Cave Optical at the oh, time. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah you, so you recognize the name, uh, yes. Tom Cave, but yeah. The Cadillac of, of telescopes in, in the mm-hmm. days. Alika um, ground and polished what I think is the world's most accurate hand polished mirror, uh, probably even today. Uh, and the combination of his uh, incredible visual acuity, the sight properties, and uh, that amazing telescope. It's called the Herring Super Mirror for your for your uh, And he discovered with his uh, naked eye observations that Mount Kea was just unbelievably good as a site. Um, that in turn triggered the governor to put a road up uh, to the summit of Mount Kea, uh, more site testing. And then uh, sort of fast forward 1968, uh, the University of Hawaii was um, awarded what we call the master lease or general lease for the Mount Kea Science Reserve, which is about 10,000 acres on the summit of Mount Kea. Mm. And then a few years later, the first telescope was built. That was a UH 2.2 meter, what we call it the 8 inch. Um, that was the only telescope on Mount Kea through 79. Uh, and, and in a sense, it's its claim to fame was that it was used to demonstrate internationally that Mount Kea was a truly spectacular site for astronomy. Right. Uh, in 79, we had the NASA Infrared Telescope Facility, the Canada France Wide Telescope, and the UK Infrared Telescope, all commissioned in one year. Wow. Yeah, so that was that really catapulted Mount Kea ahead. Those were three and four meter class telescopes, which is basically state of the art uh, in the late 70s. And then uh, in the 80s, uh, the submillimeter radio facilities were built. So that's Caltech Submillimeter Observatory, James Cook Maxwell Telescope. That's a 15 millimeter uh, dish. And uh, eventually, the, the, a submillimeter array operated by Smithsonian and a very large array. So that's part of the our VLBA, very large baseline array. That's part of the, mm-hmm. the global network that the U.S. Uh, Radio uh, Observatory operates, I think it's six or eight of those between Hawaii and Virgin Islands. And they, they work at incredibly you know, micro arc second level resolutions with that interferon. And then in the 90s um, came along uh, Gemini, an eight meter mm-hmm. telescope. Uh, Subaru, also eight meter telescope. Prior to those two were the Keck twins, Keck one and two. Those are 10 meter segmented. Right. Uh, this is the first time that that technology was an incredible story of innovation at Keck. Uh, they were way out uh, in front of their time. Uh, we kind of have a joke of to, to be kecked in astronomy means um, you, you've uh, got such an advantage over every other telescope that you're going to, to just do amazing science uh, out front. And, and they did, particularly during the 90s, where there just was no competition to Keck. Um, and uh, uh, from there, that was that was basically it for development. So it left us with, I guess, altogether all t- all 13 telescopes on Mauna Kea. Okay. Uh, a couple are being decommissioned right now, and that leads into the, the deeper conversation of TMT and other things. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, the first note of a multiple mirror telescope was obviously up on up up on Mauna Kea with the Keck, and now with uh, the Webb have the same basic. That's right. No, uh, they're, they're both magnetic mirror te- yeah. telescopes. It's basically the only way to scale beyond eight meters in in practice. The, the eight meter telescopes are monolithic. They're about ten inches thick and eight, yeah. eight across. They're active. Um. Uh, I'm pretty sure the limiting factor in that technology uh, isn't so much the technology. You can build larger monolithic mirrors, but you can't transport them. Right. Um, and uh, it's a kind of a non-intuitive limiting factor. But you basically to build build a bigger monolith, you you have to put the plant right at the observatory to deal with uh, the transportation issue, which is simply not practical. So, so the big telescopes of the future are all using segmented mirror technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing the old pictures of Palomar's 200 inch going up on a truck up them on the side road, right? Uh, yeah, no thanks. Exactly. <laughs> That's not something I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, they they hauled the uh, eight meter tel- primaries for Gemini and Subaru up from Kauai High Port um, uh, using a big um, uh, multi axis uh, uh, truck, and it's a, it was like two or three days to get that mirror from port all the way to the summit. Why? Why? So you mentioned that there, there, there's 13 instruments now, but some are being de- decommissioned. Correct. Yeah. The Caltech's a millimeter observatory. Uh, it should be deconstructed uh, in the spring. And uh, it's called Hokukea, which is the UH Hilo teaching telescope, is being removed from the summit. And um, there's a well-advanced proposal to put a, um, a new telescope at Halipahaku, the mid-level facility, to replace that one. Okay. Is it funding reasons why they're going down or is it? Um, lots of reasons. Um, initially, it was funding reasons for CSO. Okay. Um, Hokokea is more of a, the an outcome of the TMT uh, controversy uh, and an initiative by then Governor Ige to remove telescopes from some of the Mauna Kea. Um, uh, going forward, you know, we have the new Mauna Kea. Um, Stewardship and Oversight Authority replacing the university to manage the Southern Malakea. And, and we're in this really, really complicated transition space right now between UH and, and the new authority. Um, um, and well, lots of very basic questions about how this is going to go forward with that, that new organization. Okay. Now, you mentioned the TMT contra- controversy. I'm not familiar with what that is. Can you explain that to me a little bit? Well, the the 30 meter telescope uh, project um, sort of arrived on the scene uh, maybe 2008 or so. Although the, the history of that project goes quite a ways further back, and uh, um, settled on Mount Kea through a, a fairly large testing program around the world as the first site, and uh, worked their way through the permitting process and and. Lots of international funding efforts, et cetera. Um, their first, you know, serious headwinds within the um, Native Hawaiian community here, uh, at least the fraction of the community that, that uh, opposes telescopes on Mauna Kea, because there's, there actually is quite strong support in other areas within the Native Hawaiian community for, for Mauna Kea astronomy. Um, in any case, uh, 2014, there was a a roadblock when. Um, uh, the TMT groundbreaking ceremony was held. I was up there in the middle of all that, so I remember it well. And then 2015, I believe it was in April, there were about 30 or so people arrested at the mid-level facility for also blocking the road for TMT construction trucks. Mm-hmm. 
and another one in June or July of 2015. That one had uh, maybe 500 or so people. Um, that sent TMT, um, you know, backwards, uh, so to speak, in terms of their um, their efforts. There's a lot of litigation pertaining to their permit. Um, the Supreme Court here in the state eventually validated that. Uh, so they are you know, today they they are fully um, legally vetted and principal could could build that house. So um, there's every expectation that there'd be wide scale uh, protests and more roadblocks. Uh, in 2019, uh, was the huge uh, uh, protest. I, I, I think it's better called a movement. Um, there's upwards of three or four thousand people at the peak that uh, set up an encampment at the base of Mount K Access Road and, and blocked uh, um, TNT construction. And for a period of time, actually, the observatories uh, uh, as well to get our folks up and down the mountain. Oh, wow. So that, that lasted for about six months, um, and then COVID struck, uh-huh. and um, that um, led to the you know, dismantling of the encampment. And uh, here we are, um, uh, working our way through this big transition with the new Mount K Authority, and, and how TMT fits into that is amongst the many questions out there. Wow, and you're relatively new in this position as the director, aren't you? Um, new at the IFA as director, but like I said, I've been in Hawaii astronomy for 35 years, so okay. I'm kind of the old man on the mountain at this point. Okay, so you know, you, you've you've seen it. and I've witnessed it. away from grad school to today on Hawaii, yeah. Okay, wow, wow, wow. So all the observatories up there, are they are they um, individually operated by, you know, nonprofits or how, how is that up? How's that work? Yeah, so most of the funding for the observatories is provided by international uh, federal finance agencies. Okay. Um, the, the most common ones being NASA, National Science Foundation. In Canada, that would be NRC, the National Research Council. You have NAOJ, the, the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan, providing funding. Um, uh, CNRS, uh, my French isn't good enough, sorry, but that's the, <laughs> the funding FHT. Uh, there are six or eight um, of these uh, federal funding agencies. So I don't have the exact number. It's probably about 95% of the money that uh, sponsors the observatories is taxpayer dollars uh, around the world. And these um, federal agencies uh, sponsor particle accelerators. They sponsor physics experiments, chemistry, and um, all kinds of uh, scientific research. And amongst that is astronomy and um, uh, provide the funding that is needed <coughs> to operate these facilities on behalf of um, astronomers worldwide who go through a peer review process for their observing proposals. and. Um, if their proposals make the cut, they get observing time and, and data, and it's all provided uh, free to the observers. Okay. Now, as a director, are you overseeing all of the observatories, or is this no. one or two specific? Um, no, UH has, is an owner-operator today of five observatories. Okay. Yeah, and um, a number of facilities on Haleakala as well over on Maui. Uh, so we, we've got a lot of parts in motion, per se, but... Um, uh, organizations like Keck or CFHT or Gemini, those are independent of UH. Okay. And they don't answer to you in any way? Um, no, they do. Okay. All right. All I don't right. have that All level right. of authority. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because when I first started researching Mauna Kea, I said, oh, there's a lot of observatories and a lot of 
pieces right. in the pies with all the domes up there and all the all the different yeah. instruments. So yeah, there's a lot of collaboration going on. Uh, you know, a lot of over the years, a lot of people, including me, have worked for more than one observatory in Mount Okay. Um, so it has it, it started out as a uh, a more siloed, competitive environment, but these days there's so much cross pollination between the observatories that it's it's um, a highly collaborative um, network uh, of facilities. Granted, they're independently funded for the most part, but um, we we really do try to function as a big a, a big team uh, up on Mount Camp. Yeah, there's there's a lot of similarity between a lot of the instruments too that are up there too. So there's probably like you mentioned cross pollination of types of studies that they're doing and, and programs they're working on. That's right. Yeah, a lot of collaboration scientifically and, and technically. That's good. That's good. What what are some of the major science programs taking place up there right now? So probably the most popular one is exoplanets. Mm-hmm. Um, giving us a tour um, not long ago to to people and pointing out. Uh, I think there are about five or so major new instruments that uh, have either recently been or plan to be deployed on Mauna Kea. Uh, these would all be um, uh, high-resolution spectrographs using um, Doppler measurements to detect the so-called wobble in um, close stars to planets. Uh, it's been a technique that's been used for, for decades now. Mm-hmm. Um so there's a new instrument at Keck, um, at Gemini, that one's called Maruna, at Zero at CFHT, uh, IRD over at Subaru, and I'm sure I'm missing at least one. But there's a tremendous focus on uh, exoplanets, in particular identifying uh, terrestrial-class exoplanets mm-hmm. on nearby stars. And there's a, a lot of synergy with the TESS mission at NASA, which is doing right. the same, but right. through um, transit uh, observations. Um, so that's a big one. Um, at UH, um, we have uh, activity going on uh, that's linked to both um, the facilities on um, Haleakala and on Mauna Kea. Um, not long ago, there was also a telescope on Mount Aloha, but the eruption there mm. um, in December actually uh, obliterated about a mile of road, and we lost power to that observatory. Uh. So um, that's going to be offline for a while. But a lot of the work that um, we're doing involves um, essentially mapping out all the near-Earth objects up to roughly 100 uh, 100 meters or so in the solar system. Uh, Those are discovered primarily by the PanSTARRS telescopes, which are field telescopes on Haleakala. And then um, each night, um, objects discovered... um, have their initial astrometry transmitted over to telescopes on Mount Apea, where the follow-up work is used to really pinpoint uh, the orbits and determine if we have so-called uh, potential impactors. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of work in, for lack of a better term, killer asteroid yeah. research uh, going on. And then you just have the entire gamut of research. Uh, dark energy is a big one. Uh, a lot of research into dark matter with various observations going on. Um, uh, the black hole research is second to none. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Andrea Gez just got the Nobel Prize for that, right. um, for her work at Tech and demonstrating um, very convincingly there's a 4 million solar mass black hole. And uh, the, there are two telescopes, JCMT and SMA, that were critical in the Event Horizon Telescope that made the first images of 
of black holes in M87 and, and uh, in our galaxy. So that's that's another popular one. Um, so, but you know, the short answer to your question is exoplanets is probably the number one topic, just given the the huge investment in instruments um, recently on Mount Kea, um, and then it, it it spreads everywhere from uh, big surveys that are being conducted at UCURT and CFHT with their panoramic imagers to um, a whole variety of astrophysics with the bigger telescopes, um, sort of following up the the um, well, survey work in a lot of instances with their their large apertures. I, I kind of uh, think of them as microscopes on the sky. They they have much smaller fields of view, but enormous light gathering power. Um, so the the synergy that's set up over the years is the, the sort of two to four meter class telescopes do the big surveys, generate catalogs with millions of objects, and then those needles in the haystack are what you follow up uh, with the big telescopes. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We in the amateur community, uh, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, a couple of years ago, started an exoplanet section, mm-hmm. and with amateur telescopes, so I, I'm I'm amazed that we're what we're seeing as sure, amateurs. The amateurs are incredibly sophisticated these days. Yes, um, they are. I mean, when I think of what I did with you know Fuji R100 film and a Minolta SRT 101 in high school, uh, you speak in my language. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, wow. and now you get this instant gratification of digital cameras and yeah. guiding and all kinds of fancy software. You know, I, yeah, of- I look, I look at what's, the robotic telescopes that are now starting to come out, and it's just insane. What it's amazing what, what technology can do these days. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Now, what about public outreach and programs like that that you're involved with? Yeah, I, I'm really involved with a lot of of uh, community engagement outreach programs. Um, the signature program we started uh, when I was director at CFHT uh, was called Mount Kea Scholars, which is still going strong. Uh, and uh, Mary Beth Lechek now runs that uh, at CFH. Um, the gist of that program is that um, high school students across the state who are being mentored primarily by UH Institute for Astronomy graduate students uh, develop their own research proposals for the observatories uh, on Mauna Kea. Uh, they also have access to telescopes on Haleakala and actually through Las Cruces wow. around the world. Uh, yeah, this is a really fun program. Uh, we, we work primarily with sort of age, I'm sorry, grade 9 through 12. Uh, and um, these students come up with just remarkably creative proposals. Um, they are competed, just like you know, professional proposals. About a third make the cut. I'm on the time allocation committee along with a few others uh, that go through and read all the proposals. In fact, I just got those from Kapolei High School on my desk here the other day. Mm. So we'll we'll review those. Uh, We will fly over to Kapolei probably in a month or two and uh, award observing time to those students. Then they are paired up with uh, researchers to make sure they get their time. They've got the grad students to help them interpret the data. Uh, so this is, I'm, I'm pretty sure, unique worldwide to have high schoolers, uh, you know, play around in what's essentially a billion-dollar sandbox called the Mount Kea Observatory. Yeah, I, you're the first one I've talked to that had a, a program like that, and it's it's where it's where was it when I was 17? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. That, that's you know, I came up with the idea early on at CFHT, and, and part of it was that I, you know, I would have loved to have access to Palomar when mm-hmm. I was in high school, right? Because that was the big dog, so to speak. Yeah. At the time. Um, and, uh, we started this in, uh, I think it was 2015, uh, 
our first pilot program at two schools. We actually had no idea how this was going to work out. Mm -hmm. uh, super popular. Um, I think we've got about a dozen or so uh, public high schools now in the program. Fantastic. So that's, that's a, that we're just having a blast with Mount case scholars. Um, another big one is um, the uh, Akamai internship program. So it's sort of a little older. This is for college uh, undergraduates. Um, and this program is now, it was started at UC Santa Cruz and we're now taking it on uh, at, at the IFA. And that's been around 20 years. Um, every year, uh, maybe 30 or so uh, local college students in STEM research um, are provided um, internships each summer. Most of those are with the observatories. Fantastic track record. Uh, we love it uh, with the observatories because a lot of these interns, we turn around and hire when they graduate. Um, there are four young women now, all engineers, who are working with the DKIST telescope. That's the new $400 million solar mm -hmm. observatory on Haleakala. Um, and uh, I think we're up to roughly 150 or so graduates of Akamai internships that are now employed in STEM companies oh, across Hawaii and another several hundred across the United States. Um, so that's another, you know, sort of longstanding, very successful uh, public education program. Then you have Journey Through the Universe, which has also been around 20 years or so. Um, Journey um, brings together upwards of 70 or 80 educators. Mm. Um, and uh, for a week, uh, we go into classrooms all over, uh, mostly East Hawaii Island, also North Hawaii Island. And um, generally, we'll reach upwards of 10,000 students. And, wow. and that bit, um, I always, these days I run the uh, job panel. So uh, I, I, I go with uh, others from the observatories into the local schools. And we talk about job opportunities with high school students um, to, to pique their interest, to make them aware of out there. Um, most of the rest of the journey, though, is dedicated to in-classroom uh, education experiences. So anyway, those are three big ones. There, mm -hmm. there is well over a hundred, literally a hundred different uh, astronomy education outreach programs on on Hawaii Island. Uh, we put over well over two million dollars a year into these programs, and uh, for me, it's first of all, it's fun to just get out the office <laughs> <laughs> to, to be. You know, but I really, I really love working with the kids, mm -hmm. and um, it's it's a great way to. Make sure that the local community, my community, uh, has access to these telescopes and is aware of the opportunities for their future careers. That's fantastic. Now, the, the scholars program you said has been going on since 2015. Yeah, I believe that was our first year. Yeah. So you've had some time to see its effect on those individuals, yeah. and uh, so, tell me some success stories with that. Yeah, so it's it's now sort of you know mature enough to to watch these students mm -hmm. uh, uh, in their respective careers. Um, we're not necessarily trying to you know, as Mary Beth with Lechek would say, create a, a whole army of astronomers, um, but the program is is remarkable in, in the sense of uh, the transformative transformative aspect of students seeing their ideas validated by professional astronomers. Um, and the opportunity to visit Mauna Kea and use these, these giant telescopes. Um, so a lot of these students go into engineering, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them are really attracted to the technology that they witness, uh, sorry, the scientific research, which is great. We, yep. we're 
most of the jobs in astronomy or engineering are not necessarily research. True. Um, uh, and now we, we've the program is mature enough that we're seeing Mount Kea scholars go into the undergraduate program uh, at the institute, which I'm super pleased with. Um, and and I, I'm anticipating our very first graduate students at the institute that started out as Mount Kea scholars. Um, so that's that's know, got to really make you proud. It does. It it demonstrates the pipeline's real, and you know these things, these have, these are long term commitments, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can't just you know flick a switch and expect great things to happen in a year. But um, uh, watching these students, who for me they start out as a name on a, a two page proposal. I don't know who they are, what their story. I'm I'm the guy who goes to the high schools with Mary Beth and awards the very time, so I get the fun part. Mm-hmm. Thing and and to watch them uh, with their careers. Um, you know, advance is is really really gratifying. So we we track a lot of these students, and and these are long term relationships that are built uh, from the time that they submit their proposals to the time that they they you know, you know get into to college and, and and ultimately into jobs. That's great. Yeah, we um, our organization, Alpha, we are struggling right now to bring in a younger audience mm-hmm. to, into astronomy. Because you know, yeah, kids get their telescopes, and it's like your very first experience with your sixty millimeter refractor, which was mine too. You right. know, is this all I can see? You know, there's got to be there's got to be more out there, and then you want a larger telescope and a larger telescope. But also the instant gratification that a lot of these kids have on the internet, right? Things and it's that they want stuff to look like what Webb is showing and Hubble's showing, and right, it's not realistic to do that. And it's you know, it, it's it's fun to hear that you've captured the imagination of these kids at a good age and brought them along it sounds like they're basically like a partner with you too because you're totally. helping them out and and they're doing work with you so that, that that's absolutely right and you know these students go into the internship program akamai or um or other areas uh so it's it's you know it's multifaceted mm-hmm. uh, i call it a pipeline but it's really a network of pipelines that um you have to stitch together over time. And uh, for me, that's one of the more sort of gratifying aspects of, of coming back to IFA and, and leading uh, within the university of this program, because I, for the first time in my career, have now the opportunity to work directly, really in a mentoring role. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I was a product of the IFA, and um, at this point in my career, it's, it's really quite gratifying to be able to uh, lead an education program and a research program at the IFA that is so student focused, uh, like we have here. Um, it's it's um, uh, a way for me to give back, and mm-hmm. you know, like everybody at my age, we want, we want to pass the torch, so to speak, right. to the next generation. And I'm fortunate though to be able to to be you know the IFA director and, and, and have a, a real role with that. That's great. That's 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 really good. Um, yeah. I'm impressed by that. Uh, now, is there like a visitor center? I know the altitude of the observatory is rather high. I, I've had friends of mine that have gone there, and yeah, you need to have oxygen or you need things like that. So, is there a visitor center or something where people can actually go and interact? Yeah. So, there's a visitor information station called the Viz at the 9,000 foot level, okay. uh, right adjacent to Halik Bahaku, which is basically the mid level residence for engineers and astronomers. Um, uh, and you can just Google. The Mount Kea Visitor Information Station. Um, they have, um, uh, let's see. Generally, they have a solar telescope during the day. Mm-hmm. I believe they're going to ramp up to provide some uh, 
working at night. Uh, the challenge has been with, um, you know, we have a new $330 million highway between Hilo and Kona, mm-hmm. down the highway. And wonderful paved road. Um, it's now possible for people in a rental car to get up to the Viz. So it's incredibly popular. Um, and some fraction of them go all the way to the summit as well. You can uh-huh. rent four drives uh, to get to the summit. So there's, uh, uh, there's roughly a quarter million people a year that go to the Viz. Oh, wow. that's, that's larger than the population. <laughs> <laughs> So just giving your, you know, your listeners a heads up that it is, it is popular, only about a hundred or so parking places. Okay. Um, um, but, but that's, that's a, a wonderful site. Um, that's where I bring students up with my, my homemade telescope to mm-hmm. build things because it's a very dark sky. Um, when you go to the summit, um, believe it or not, the oxygen deprivation uh, impacts your retina uh, right. pretty, pretty strongly. And you just don't see this, the stars as brightly as you you might expect. Um, a real sweet spot is down about nine thousand feet. You got plenty of O2 in your 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 brain and your retina, and the sky is just booming bright with the Milky Way and stars. It's really quite spectacular there. So, I advise just go up as high as nine thousand and, and enjoy the night sky there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. My next trip. Yeah, we we've been to every island but the Big Island, so that's that's. I think that's going to be our next trip, and yeah, de- definitely a goal to go there. Wow. So what are some of the future plans you have for the mountain? Well, TMT is the, the you know, big mm-hmm. project that's on the, the horizon. Um, another one that uh, uh, Canada-Francois Telescope is advancing is called the Manakea Spectroscopic Explorer, or MSC. It's a project that uh, we started um, in earnest in 2014, a couple of years in as CFH director at the time. And um, essentially, this is um, a machine that is designed to do um, spectroscopy at a, a level that is unprecedented. Um, and by that, I mean multi-object spectroscopy. Um, so it's capable of generating millions and millions of spectra um, each year at using a, a replacement for a CFHT, which is a 3.6 meter telescope. Um, and as uh, proposed now, I think it's an 11 meter telescope. Oh, wow. um, a little bit bigger in CAC, yeah, using segmented technology. Uh, the neat part about it is that you can keep the, uh, the pier and the building. You have to put a slightly larger dome on it. So there's no change in the footprint uh, of the building. And given the sensitivities of development of Mount Ikea, that's, that's a, a very clever way to use in- existing infrastructure um, and, and a huge upgrade. Uh, by essentially, you know, replacing the telescope at the top of the pier. Um, so that is also um, in a development phase. Uh, they are, I think they're just about to release a letter of interest for um, mm. other organizations to uh, co-develop uh, uh, what's called MSC Pathfinder, but also the MSC project itself. So, so those are the big ones in terms of new facilities. There's a lot of new instrumentation going. Uh, um, Subaru is now commissioning a hundred million dollar um, multi-optic spectrograph, uh, similar concept to MSC, uh, but not as uh, 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 high resolution and not as many fibers. They, I think it's 2,400 objects concurrently. Um, MSC, depending on the design, I think they're thinking as many as 10,000 objects at the same time that they can record spectra. So, you know, when you're, you're doing 10,000 objects at a time, wow. 
you're, you're just blowing away um, uh, capability, particularly with a really large telescope uh, that has existed to date. And that, that all kind of portends um, the, the evolution of astronomy as a field. I, I, I tend to think of the 20th century as the, the age in which we mapped out through imagery uh, the universe in, in lots of different wavelengths. And the 21st century will be sort of hallmarked as the, the, the century of spectroscopy, where we now have the technology to follow up um, and um, measure the astrophysics of these objects as opposed to just their images or, or colors of uh, the 20th century. And, and that's where you really get into the, the nitty gritty of what these objects are and the new interesting physics behind them. So MSC is, a, is one of the, the leaders in that area. Uh, prime focus spectrograph, like I said, it's been, been mm -hmm. built as a mission now. Keck has a lot of interesting instruments. They are, um, I believe, going to retrofit adaptive secondary mirrors on both of those telescopes. Mm -hmm. So that means built-in adaptive optics. Um, uh, and they have um, uh, about a half a dozen or so different um, instruments that are under development there right now. Uh, at UH to the 2.2 meter, we have RoboAO, so it's a fully robotic adaptive uh, optic system that is uh, about to be deployed. Um, its claim to fame is the it's a laser AO system, fully robotic. By that I mean uh, automatic. It's so-called push-button, uh, pre-programmed, and and it can uh, at a very high cadence um, slew across the sky and record AO images of objects. Um, at a pace that will, is much, much faster than other AO systems. Um, so it's a little everything. It's yeah, <laughs> at some level. Wow. Answer your question. Um, uh, definitely not stagnant. Uh, no. <laughs> a lot of continued um, investment and, and instrumentation uh, across essentially all the telescopes. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot going on up there. That's good to see. You got your hands full. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of do. <laughs> Well, well, Doug, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close this out? No, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share a few thoughts about the, the observatories. Um, uh, you know, I uh, I talk a lot to the public, uh, to politicians, to school kids, et cetera. Uh, very proud of what we've we've been able to do here in Hawaii. Um, we are on Mauna Kea alone, uh, the number one. Uh, co-located uh, astronomy complex in the world in terms of science impact. And uh, that, that for us, you know, there's only a couple hundred thousand of us on this island. And to have that that kind of um, impact scientifically on a global scale is is something that uh, is remarkable. And it's attributable to um, the, the uh, incredible properties of Mauna Kea as a site. Mm -hmm. A real tribute to the people uh, here in Hawaii, in particular on Hawaii Island, that... Uh, you know, thousands of people over the years, be they contractors or working for territories, the university, they, everybody's chipped in over time to build the Mauna Kea observatories and make them what they are today. And uh, I'm super proud to have a small part in that in, in, in my career and lifetime. Great. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast today, Doug. Okay. All right. Thanks. Good luck. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I hope you're enjoying the series of historic observatories and our visit with uh, Mauna Kea Observatory in Hawaii. 
We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, and if you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, and also on the ALPO YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can get up to $35 a month, where you'll receive one year's membership to the Alpo and producer credits on the podcast. With that, I want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seed and Top, Michael Moore, for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much. The link for Patreon, as well as, well as the link for the Alpo, is in the show notes. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at @observersnbpod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>